good morning to all of you. Um, we are going to be thinking about covenants this morning. Um, and um, so I don't know what you all think of when you think of the word covenants. Um, it sounds like one of those big spiritual words to me that means like uh, sanctification or justification um, or just something pretty scary. Um, so um, to begin with, I need a volunteer who can do five jumping jacks. So I'm guessing that some of you all are not, don't know how to do jumping jacks or maybe um, you're just, Four is your max, but I need a volunteer who's willing to come up here and do five jumping jacks. Hannah, will you come forward? So, um, so as we talk about covenants, um, this is going to be a covenant between uh, between Hannah and myself. So, um, Hannah, I am going to give you one dollar if you do five jumping jacks. So. Um, you know, do you know what a covenant is? Uh, no. No. Okay. So some people think of a covenant like a contract. Okay. So we would take a piece of paper and I would write on it, I promise to give Anna a dollar if she does five jumping jacks. Um, but maybe a simpler way of thinking of it is just two people promising to do something for each other. Uh, so I'm going to promise one thing and you will promise another thing. Now, if we were in the Bible time, we would take an animal and we would cut it up. Okay, so we'd take one of Rich's sheep and we would cut it up and we would put um, the pieces all around us. And then we would stand in the middle. We would promise this thing to each other. And um, I decided not to do that this morning uh, because Rich likes his sheep and uh, because I think it would make a mess for whoever has to clean up after the sermon. So anyway, um, so we're not going to do that part of this. Um, but we can imagine that around us there are little pieces of um, sheep that have been cut up, and, um, and uh, it's pretty fresh, so it doesn't smell too bad yet. But uh, So now, would you do five jumping jacks for me? Okay. Wonderful. That was beautiful. So here's a dollar. Thank you. So if I had, <laughs> if I had promised to give you a million dollars, would you have trusted me to give you a million dollars? Yes. Okay, you shouldn't. You shouldn't have. I I don't have a million dollars. You can go back to your family. Uh, so, so uh, yes, I'm not trustworthy. If I tell somebody I can give them something, I can't. But the blessing is that when God promises things, He always carries through. And why is that? Because He has all the money, right? And He has all the power to carry through on His on His promises. Um, so when we look at this verse up here, that's what we think about. We think about somebody who is greater than anybody else in the universe. So my neighbor, Shelton Miles, told me um, that, um, that for eternity, and I don't know that he really meant eternity, for as long as the state of Virginia exists, nobody can build houses or do things like that across the street from my house. Um, and this is because he did some kind of a conservation easement on his land. And when you sign one of those, you commit that you are um, going to use the land for agricultural purposes or um, for hunting and fishing, things like that. But you can't build on it. And so, um, so he can sell the land. He can do it. But whoever buys the land from him knows 
that they can only use it for agricultural purposes. And he did that, I think, because he got some kind of a tax break on it, but maybe also because he likes the idea of it being farmland. Um, so if we looked at the word covenant in Hebrew, we would see that the word covenant comes from the Hebrew word, which means to cut. And as we look at our passage today, um, we're going to see that this comes from the, the idea of cutting animals and standing between them and making vows or oaths to each other. And in the Old Testament, there are two kinds of covenants. Um, some are obligatory, um, and these um, obligatory is a big word, but it means that these were covenants made between people of equal standing. So if we think of Boaz and Naomi's closer kinsmen, um, and they made a covenant about marrying Ruth, and um, this was an obligatory covenant. And then some were called promissory covenants. These would be agreements between someone of high standing, like a king, with people who were of much lower standing. So covenants that made, God made with people would fall into this category. So and um, who can think of some examples of covenants from the Old Testament? So we're not going to talk about New Testament here, but what, what is an example of a covenant from the Old Testament? Okay, David and Jonathan had made a covenant together, didn't they? That um, regardless of what happened, they would take care of each other. Um, and this was hard on Jonathan because it actually drove a wedge between him and his father, didn't it? Um, are there some examples of covenants that God made with people? So we have one today, right? Covenant that God made with Abraham. Exactly. That's the first one, isn't it? Genesis 9, 9 through 17. We're not going to read that, um, but we know that when Noah came out of the ark, he made a covenant that he would not destroy the world with water, and he put a sign of that in the, in the heavens. What was that sign? It's a rainbow, okay? So, um, so every time we see a rainbow, we should think of the covenant that God made. Uh, and he made it with Noah, but he made it with us too, didn't he? Okay, so we're on the earth, and he's not going to flood us out either. Um, there's a, a covenant that God made with David. If you look in Second Samuel 7, 5 through 17, um, with an emphasis on verses 14 through 17, um, God told David that someone from his line would sit on the throne forever. And this, this covenant doesn't really make any sense. So if you look at modern Israel, whoever's, um, ruling in Israel um, is not descended from David, probably. But um, this was fulfilled in Jesus. So covenants in the New Testament period are a little different from those in the Old Testament. Um, we use the word testament sometimes in the New Testament. That's the Greek word um, for covenant. And perhaps the best description of this is going to be found in the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews 9, 16 through 28. And this is all introduction. We're going to be going to Genesis 15 in a little bit. And then we're going to, as we finish up, thinking of, think about what it means that God has promised us things. So Hebrews 9, 16 through 28. For where there is a testament or covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So this is talking about a will. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken 
every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with scarlet, with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it was appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So a key point is that biblical covenants require blood to be shed. In the case of Moses, this was not Moses cutting himself and bleeding. This was Moses um, sacrificing an animal. Um, so you would take a cow or a sheep or a goat and you would, you would um, offer that as a sacrifice. And through that blood, you would receive some sort of remission. And we know that that remission was not really because of the sheep. It was because it was looking forward to the pure, spotless Lamb of God who would die for our sins. And in the case of the New Testament covenant, Jesus sealed the covenant with his own blood. So Hebrews is the book of better things. We call it that because it's talking about things that are better than what was in the Old Testament. So um, you all may not realize this, but um, new stuff isn't always better than old stuff. So, um, so those of us who are a little more ancient uh, will, will tell you that um, when they would buy a vacuum cleaner years and years ago, it would last forever and it would vacuum really well forever. And you didn't have to do too much to it except occasionally uh, change some belts or things. Um, but these days things are made to break. And, um, and so, uh, but in this case, the new Testament is so much better than the old Testament. The old Testament is looking forward to the New Testament. And the author of Hebrews tells us that the covenant that God was making with us would deal with sin once and for all and that it would no longer be written on tables of stone. So when Moses came down from the mountain, he had tables of stone, right? That'd be pretty heavy to carry around, wouldn't it? Um, so, uh, you know, whatever your iPhone is, well, you have to carry around these big tables of stone. But no, God wrote it on the tables of our heart. So we carry it around everywhere we go. So let's go to Genesis chapter 15. This is actually, that was all just introduction. So, um, so we're going to read um, this in two sections. We're going to read Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Um, and this is Abram expressing doubt. And then we're going to read the second part, which is God giving the covenant. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, 
the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So as we begin this passage, we see that there are two things that are pressing on Abram's mind. Um, the first thing is that he is worried about the present. Um, so um, I don't know if you all can remember the last time I shared from Genesis, but he had just um, gone into battle with some kings. And so he is probably thinking about danger. What happens if those kings decide to come back? And instead of focusing on Sodom and Gomorrah, they're focused on Abram and and um, wrecking revenge on him. Um, and, and maybe in his heart, he sort of thinks, you know, that victory I had back there, that was a fluke. That couldn't happen again. Um, and the second thing is that he's worried about the future. He's getting older. Okay, and that makes sense. All of us are getting older. But he's feeling pretty old right here. Um, his wife isn't going to have children. And what are they going to do? So God told Abram that God was Abram's shield, that is, protection from surrounding people, and that God is Abram's great reward. And have you ever felt really alone? I think Abram had to feel alone a lot of times. He was dwelling in a land where people didn't believe in God. He was a foreigner. And the people around him, you know, I think they were a lot like people today. So, you know, if you tell people today that Jesus is a way to God, they're okay with that. But if you tell people today that Jesus is the only way to God, they're not okay with that. And in the same way, people in Abram's day were very glad to add gods to the gods they served. They would say, you know, we're worshiping Ashtoreth and Baal and and all these other gods, and, and sure, yeah, you know, if you want us to build an altar to, um, to Jehovah, we'll do that too. And then Abram shows up and says, you know what? You have to get rid of all those other altars and worship only God. He's the only one. All the rest of these are false gods. They're idols. And that would make him pretty alone because nobody else around him believed that way. And we don't know exactly how he dealt with this separation from the people around him, but, um, but I'm sure it affected him. And we know that Abram passed up the reward that the king of Sodom offered him. And God's letting him know, you know what? That's okay. I will make sure that you are rewarded. So we come to Abram's heir. Um, and this is something that weighed on Abram's mind. He's got all this stuff. He has been promised something, and it just hasn't showed up yet. And as we look through Genesis, we find that there are 
different people who could have been Abram's heir, right? So we, the beginning of the story, we have Lot, his nephew, and Lot wasn't a great person, but you know, he was, he was a relative. He lived close by Abram. And, and so, you know, in his mind, you know, maybe Abram's thinking, well, if, if thing, you know, if I don't have a child, I, I could adopt Lot and, um, and he'll be my heir. And then Lot goes off to Sodom and things just didn't go very well. And even though Abram rescued Lot, you never hear Lot saying, thank you, Abram. You know, I, I appreciate you. I'd really like to get closer to you. No, that's, that's sort of separated. Here he says, you know, Eliezer's my heir. So who's Eliezer? Well, Eliezer was his servant. He said he was born in his household. This is, this is somebody who took care of his stuff. He's his chief servant. And if Abram died, he's the one who's going to get all this stuff. Abram says, that just doesn't feel great. I, I don't, you know, I like Eliezer, but he, he shouldn't be my heir. This isn't what you promised me, God. Later on, we, we come to Ishmael. And um, this was this was... Abram's son, but we know that Ishmael was not the son of promise. And then last of all, we come to Isaac, and we won't be talking about him this morning. Uh, But the important thing here is that God had a plan, and that plan did not change because of Abram's age. It did not change because Sarai's age. His plan was his plan. And so sometimes, you know, we think about plan B. So you're, you're going through life, and you think, well, so I had this sort of when I was applying to medical school and I thought, you know, it's hard to get into medical school. And if I don't get into medical school, my plan B will be to, to be a teacher. I'm going to teach um, chemistry was what I thought I would do. And that was sort of plan B. And what if I couldn't be a chemistry teacher? Well, then I would have to figure out plan C. And, you know, God never goes to plan B. Is that a blessing? Absolutely. Our actions don't upset him. And there aren't any events in this world that are going to mess his plans up. So when God promised Abram and Sarai an heir, he meant exactly what he said. And so God told Abram to go outside. So if you look online, you can find maps that will show you light pollution. They will show you places which are darker and places that are lighter. Um, This area of Virginia is pretty light. Um, if you go out at night and you look in the right direction, you're going to see light coming off the city of Lynchburg. You're going to see light from different places. Um, it's said that one-third of the world's population cannot see the Milky Way at night because of light pollution. Um, so I just decided to do a little research because this is I, – I get, like, sidetracked. And uh, the darkest – um, does anybody know where the observatory is that is the darkest place on Earth where there's an observatory? South Pole. No? It seems like that would be a good place. I don't think there's an observatory there, so like a, like to look at the stars. Argentina. That's a good guess, but it's not right. Anybody else have a guess? Okay, there is one in Colorado. There's there's one in um, there's one in Hawaii, but they're not right. Chile. Um, Chile's not right either. It is the Roque de los Muchachos Observatory. 
Uh, does anybody know where that's at? Sounds like it should be in Africa. It's in the Canary Islands. How many of y'all have been to the Canary Islands? Uh, nobody. Well, something to put on your um, list of things to do. Um, so they can see a lot of things from there because there's not a lot of light that, um, that blocks things. And of course, telescopes in space even have less light around them. But if you go outside with the, with the naked eye and you're looking at the sky, how many stars do you think you can see? This is a different question from how many stars are there. There's lots more than that. You can't. So the average person can see only a few, few thousand stars. So you would think you could see a lot more, right? But, but you actually can't, not without a telescope. So, um, and it would be really hard to count them because you would look at them and I, I mean, me personally, I would lose track. Um, so the point here though is that his descendants would not be able to be counted. Um, so if we count all the Jewish people in the world, um, we still would miss a lot of people probably. Um, and you couldn't do it, you, they're not all in one place. But even more than that, we here this morning are the spiritual descendants of Abram. And Christians cannot be counted. So it says that Abram believed God, and this was counted to him for righteousness. Romans 4 talks about this sort of thing in detail. And Paul's point in this passage is that Abram was accepted by God, not on the basis of things that he did, but on the faith that he had in God's promises to him. And if I were going to say how Abram's faith was revealed, it would be in a few different things. So it would be in a willingness to wait, um, and later maybe he didn't wait as well as he might have, um, a willingness to live a, a poor life um, in a tent rather than, um, rather than move someplace where he could have more comfort. It was a commitment to God and, um, and to only God. So Genesis 15, we're going to read verses 7 through 20. And this is God affirming the covenant with Abram. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, as God said to Abram, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, the great river, the 
River Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So this is the covenant formalized. Um, when you make a will, there's certain things that you have to do in order to have that will be um, legally affirmed in court. You have to have um, certain kinds of language that's in it. You have to draw it up in a certain way. Lawyers know this sort of thing. I have no idea what this uh, what this entails, and you have to have witnesses. You have to have somebody who says, you know, he's of a sound mind or she's of a sound mind. Um, you know, if um, so, in ancient days, what this meant was that you would take animals, you would cut them up, and you would stand in the middle of that that area, and you would affirm your promises. And with that blood, with the gods watching, you would say. If something happens, I am liable. And this was stronger than writing something down on a tablet of clay and signing your name to it. This was way stronger because you were saying that I am responsible to God for this. And so here we have Abram cutting the animals apart, driving off vultures and carrion birds until sunset, and then exhausted, he fell asleep. And it says that he had a horror that came on him. And God gave him a glimpse of the future. And we see that God revealed himself here with a smoking oven and a burning torch. Uh, the symbolism of this smoking oven, the anun tanur is the Hebrew word for it. It's literally a portable fire pot. And what, is, what does it mean? Well, we don't know. That's the thing. So if you if you look if you do some research some people think um, some people think that um, that this smoking oven is talking about the 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 crucible that Israel would be in in Egypt before they were let out. Um, as I was thinking about it, it almost made sense to me like that these are two different pictures of God. A picture of God for those who are following him and a picture of God for those who are his enemies. And if we think about the, the, uh, the pillar of fire that, that led the Israelites, it, it talks about them by the Red Sea and it, it talks about how on the one side they had light and on the other side there was darkness. And maybe this is, this is the picture that we would see here. Um, all this is kind of interesting to think about, but the important thing is that God is promising something to Abram and to his descendants that would go on forever. And I think having that picture that God is standing by himself in the middle of this, and he is promising by himself to do this thing He's not requiring something of Abram. He is saying, this is my plan, and I will carry it out in my own time and in my own way, and you can have confidence in that. And so I would like to move on to our relationship with God's promises. So I think that maybe a good place to start is just to think about salvation, there's a basic understanding that before we can accept any of God's other promises, we have to have entered into relationship with him. 
have accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And then we have so many other things that are opened up for us. God is trustworthy. Hebrews 10 verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And you notice that there, everything is kind of balanced until you come to the faithless faithful. Even when we are not what we should be, God is always what he should be. So about six, seven weeks ago, I was, um, our family was getting ready to go um, to a medical conference um, at a little island just a little south of, of Charleston, South Carolina. And I had a, a normal work day, and I'm rushing around after I got home trying to get things together so that we could leave early in the morning the next day. Um, and as I was walking down the stairs carrying something, I tripped and I fell. Um, and I had terrible pain in my foot. Um, I don't know what exactly happened. Um, I rolled my ankle, it swelled up, and, and I could hardly, um, I could hardly stand up just to, even with crutches, just to, to get out to the vehicle and I anyway I just was was lying there on the floor and I was feeling terrible and then I, I told Elaine I just think I need to go to the ER it's um, I don't know something bad's going on with my foot um, and so and so she drove me over to Gretna that's um, probably the closest ER to us and we hoped we wouldn't have to wait too long there and so they um, they took me in and they um, they x-rayed my foot um, and um, then they put me in a wheelchair and they sat me in the in the waiting room um, and I sat in the waiting room for about an hour and the whole time I was sitting in the waiting room they were playing some television program about people who'd been murdered terribly and um, and I was, was thinking dark thoughts already I was thinking even darker thoughts as I heard these kind of terrible tales of of I guess they were true but anyway they, they weren't helping my mind stay we'll say that and I was um, I was thinking about we're gonna have to miss this trip and maybe I'll need surgery on my foot and um, and um, and um, then Elaine said you know uh, maybe God knew something worse would happen if I hadn't fallen down the steps and that didn't help at all. It's like if God is big enough to make know the future knows that if I have to. Like something bad's going to happen without me falling down these steps. Surely he's big enough to protect me from that bad thing, isn't he? I don't, I don't need to fall down steps and have a terrible pain in my foot and ankle. And so I was thinking some pretty dark things. And, and I was not claiming promises of God. So if you've ever sat in a wheelchair in an emergency department listening to a terrible program about real crime, and thinking to yourself, you know, God has abandoned me. That was kind of where I was. But the issue is inside me, wasn't it? Well, in my foot too, maybe. So why are the reasons that we struggle to rely on God's promises? Well, 
maybe we think that our problems are too big for God. I, I don't think anybody actually thinks this, but maybe, maybe we think, you know, there's no solution for this. So like, you know, if you're in mathematics and you come up with some equation, there's some equations that just can't be solved. You just can't do it. And say, so, you know, this is not solvable. God can't do it, you know? So, um, but I think more likely we think our problems are too small for God. He doesn't care about something this small. You know, he's busy running the universe. Why would he care about a, a man walking down some stairs in Virginia who happens to clumsily fall down them? Maybe we just think his promises are for somebody else. Or maybe we just, in our mind, we think, you know, I'm being punished for something that I thought or I did or I should have done the other day. Or maybe we're just worried that, you know, God's plans aren't my plans and he just doesn't really want me to have any fun at all. He, he knew this trip would be too much fun for me and so he's just trying to get me from not to have fun. Um, so to finish up my story, eventually a nurse practitioner came in and saw me and told me that there was no fracture in my foot, which was helpful, but I still couldn't walk. And he said, well, you can go now. And I said, well, could you, could you do something else? And he said, well, how about I get you a walking boot? Well, that sounded like a good idea. And uh, so anyway, so he put me in a walking boot, which, um, and then I went home. And I hurt for quite a while, um, but I did eventually heal up. I was able to go to to Kiawa Island, and um, and we had an enjoyable time, even if it wasn't exactly what I'd planned. So what are some promises that we can claim? Um, so first of all, God promises hope. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And if you just said future... That wouldn't mean much, would it? All of us have a future. It may be a bad future, but we've got a future. But he says hope. That is a word that that should show light. Even if you're in a dark place, there is light at the end of the tunnel. First Peter 1, verses 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So a lot of Christians are gloomy, and I, I think they've forgotten what hope means. So if you ask some Christians anyway, hopefully none this morning, what do you have hope of? You'd say, well, I hope that I go to heaven when I die. And that's a good thing to hope for. You know, that's, there's a lot worse things to hope for, but I don't think that's what God is saying. God is saying, I will be light for your path today. There is joy today. Psalms 30 verse 5 moves on to a second thing. God has promised to restore our joy. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 94, verse 19. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. And so when you're sitting in that wheelchair in the ER, 
God's comforts can delight your soul. I love the balance we see here. I don't know how often you struggle with anxiety, but the antidote to anxiety is God's joy. And I don't know how we get there. You know, it's easy to tell somebody, you know, smile bigger. But I do know that God is faithful, that he has promised things and that he will not forsake them. God promises that he will not leave us. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. James 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And Hebrews 13, verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will take us down paths we don't want to travel, along roads we do not want to see to bring us to places we never want to leave. And that is a blessing. I'm going to say that again. God will take us down paths we don't want to travel, along roads we do not want to see, to bring us to places we never want to leave. God promises to be our refuge. Ricky had read a little bit from Psalm 46. Um, But it begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word refuge, but it feels to me like when we have a refuge, it says there's a storm outside. You don't need a refuge when everything's sunny and everything's beautiful. A wildlife refuge is a place where animals and birds are protected from danger. And God has promised to be our refuge. And we read the Bible incorrectly. We read the stories knowing their ends. And we don't realize that David in the wilderness pursued by Saul didn't know what was going to happen or how it would happen. We know that Moses herding sheep in the desert would be called to lead the children of Israel, but Moses just thought he's stuck in the desert with a bunch of sheep. In the midst of lives of service, there are moments when divine revelation seems real and clear, but there are a lot of times, years and years, when we're just slogging along, persevering. And I know that we here at Bethel have been through some hard times, and yet I believe without a doubt that these promises of God are for us. He wants to use us. He wants to give us hope and a future. So in 1967, um, the NBA had a rival basketball league start. So the NBA is the National Basketball Association and something called the American Basketball Association started up. Um, and they um, continued playing um, until somewhere around 1976. Um, and at that point, the NBA didn't like um, having the ABA and they didn't, um, they felt like they were making the salaries of the players go too high. And, 
I don't know what happened. So, um, so anyway, so they, they went to the ABA and they said, uh, we're going to take, um, two or three of your teams into our, um, into our league and then we're going to pay the rest of them just to fold you, you know, if there was, um, if you had a team, they might give you a couple million dollars and then your team would be no more. Um, and so there was, um, a pair of brothers named Ozzy and Daniel Silna um, that had a team that they called the St. Louis Spirits. Um, and for two years, they played in St. Louis. Um, but when they got news that the league was folding, um, they they had to negotiate with the NBA, and they um, they negotiated with the NBA, and the NBA didn't want a team in St. Louis. I don't know why not. Um, but they eventually got the NBA to pay them $2.2 million, which was a lot of money for the 1970s, plus they would get 2% of television money forever, in perpetuity, it said, this contract. Um, and so... Ever since then, they've gotten a check every single year for television money. In the beginning, it was only about $250,000 because the NBA um, TV money wasn't very much. But it's a lot of money these days. Um, In 2013, the NBA paid $500 million to these brothers to get them to reduce that percentage. Now, they still get paid something. But even today, they're receiving annual checks for a team that has been defunct for 45 years. And when God says something, it lasts a lot longer than 45 years. 45 years to some of you seems like a terribly long time. Hebrews 6.13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. God promised to bless Abram, and he carried through on that promise. And this morning, we are called to enter into a covenant relationship with God. The way is open for us. Jesus has opened that way for us. There's not a greater tragedy when someone rejects this new covenant and no greater blessing than when someone enters it. But just as God promised to take care of Abram and his descendants, so too he will see us through the things we face, both on the dark days, the days where we feel like we don't need his help. And this is the promise of God's covenant to us. So I ask you this morning, when you have those dark times, what are you turning to? Can you trust God's covenant? Is it faithful? Absolutely. There's no better place to trust.